2: In the late 1800s, the countries of Africa were in the midst of a period of massive European colonization.
1: With little regard for the desires of the peoples already living there, the Dutch, English, Spanish, Portuguese, Germans, and others had made a mad dash to stake their claims on the land.
0: With the age of colonization came a new age of exploration.
1: British explorer Harry Johnston was a man on a mission. While his primary focus in Africa had been, as a linguist and diplomat, striking treaties with native tribes under the British sphere of influence, Johnston was most intrigued by stories of the strange animals that lived in the center of the continent.
2: Spurred on by reports of new-to-Europe animals, such as the gorilla and giraffe, Johnston went in search of a mysterious animal
0: supposedly living in the forests of the Congo. Johnston heard reports from local tribesmen claiming the animal was a small, horse-like creature that hid in the woodland. Most intriguing to Johnston were the reports that this shy beast
2: had a single, remarkable horn growing from the center of its forehead. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to
1: Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard.
2: And I'm your host, Molly. This week, we're once again joined by Vanessa, host of ParCast's newest
0: podcast, Mythology. Hi, everyone. Every week on Mythology, we present exciting tales from ancient myths and explore where they came from. Vanessa also
2: joined us last week when we started diving into the myths and legends of the unicorn. She's with us again today as we finish our investigation into this lasting mystery.
1: You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and episodes of Mythology wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: A new episode of Unexplained Mysteries comes out every Thursday. You can also find all of ParCast's shows on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at ParCast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening.
1: This is our second episode investigating the legend of the unicorn.
0: Last week, we uncovered the truth behind the one-horned Indian ass and the biblical rem. We also explored how the unicorn, with dwindling evidence for its existence, began to change in the collective consciousness from a real animal to a simple legend. This week,
2: we'll take a closer look at physical evidence that began to appear and seemingly prove the unicorn's existence. After a cooling-down period from antiquity, expeditions began again in earnest to find the living unicorn.
0: Did the unicorn ever really exist, or was it just a story all along?
1: And what if the unicorn was not born? What if the unicorn
0: was made? As we discussed in the previous episode, by the early 1500s, the unicorn was largely thought to be a myth. At this point in history, the creature was most commonly seen in religious art as a symbol of Jesus Christ.
1: Countless explorers had tried and failed to find the Indian ass, a creature first recorded by Greek naturalist Theseus that supposedly had a single horn. This Indian ass, which Theseus never saw, was most likely an amalgamation of stories about the Indian rhinoceros, a type of Tibetan antelope called a chiru, and a large wild ass called a
0: kyong. The unicorns mentioned in the Bible were not thought of as real creatures. In fact, in the 1800s, linguists would discover that the ancient Hebrew term translated as unicorn, rem, most likely referred to an extinct type of giant ox called an aurochs.
1: Midway through the 1500s, however, the unicorn came back into the public eye with a vengeance. A certain item, prized for its rarity and healing powers, had been taking cross-continental trade by storm. The newest, hottest trend in Renaissance Europe? Unicorn horns.
2: Captain Martin Frobisher, an illustrious explorer and privateer, was on his way back home to England in 1577 with a magnificent prize. He was in high spirits as his ships were laden with treasures, from over 200 tons of supposed gold ore to a family of real Inuit from Baffin Island.
1: In the tradition of most European explorers, Frobisher saw the Inuit as a lesser, savage people not worthy of decent treatment. He had kidnapped the family to present them to Queen Elizabeth I as a present.
0: But by far, the present he was most excited about giving to the Queen was much smaller. He had found, on the shoreline of Canada, a remarkable item.
1: Dainese Settle, author of the 1577 account, A True Report of the Last Voyage by Captain Frobisher, recorded his find.
2: Quote, We found a dead fish floating, which in his nose a horn straight and torqued, of length two yards, lacking two inches, being broken in the top. We supposed it to be the sea unicorn, end quote.
1: The object, later called the Horn of Windsor, was an alicorn, or unicorn horn. It became one of Queen Elizabeth I's most precious objects, eventually taking a place among the crown jewels of England.
2: By the Renaissance, alicorns had become all the rage amongst European high society, The Horn of Windsor was valued at 100,000 pounds, which would be the equivalent of over $14 million today. It wasn't even the first alicorn owned by Elizabeth I. Her father, Henry VII, had been given one as a gift that had been filed down over the years, most likely to use its powder as a curative.
1: Large alicorns were kept as scepters by royalty or clergy. St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice had three And the Abbey of Saint-Denis near Paris had a seven-foot-tall alicorn that was used as a chalice. The Danish throne at one point even had alicorns used in its construction.
0: Not only were alicorns rare and valuable, they were believed to be magic. Unicorns were said to have healing powers. Therefore, people clamored to buy unicorn hooves, bones, teeth, hair, and alicorns. Alicorns were diced or powdered to be consumed or were carved into cups and platters in an effort to detect poisons. As mentioned in the previous episode, many common
2: diseases were referred to as poisoning before the modern age of medicine. Alicorns, in the presence of these poisons, were said to sweat or otherwise indicate the presence of toxins. Whether or not these alicorns actually helped has never been scientifically proven.
1: Upon finding his sea unicorn horn, Captain Frobisher actually used the alicorns' supposed poison-detecting and curative powers as a measure with which to test the validity of the horn.
0: According to Settle's account, he had his sailors place a number of poisonous spiders inside the hollow inner cavity of the horn. When the spiders died, Frobisher had his proof. It was a magical, poison-erasing alicorn.
1: If you've been listening closely you've probably already figured out what the actual source of the Horn of Windsor was.
2: Alicorns, the long, spiraled horns purportedly belonging to the unicorn, were in fact narwhal tusks.
1: A sea mammal that populates the waters around Greenland and eastern Canada, the narwhal is a whale similar in size to a beluga. It is notable for the males, and sometimes females, great tusk which is actually a canine tooth that grows outward through the lip. These tusks are now known by scientists to have millions of nerve endings, and they are thought to be used to communicate messages by rubbing against another narwhal's tusk.
2: Narwhals were hunted by Viking settlers, who then brought their tusks southward to trade, claiming they were unicorn horns. Since their numbers were greater in the 1500s than now, It's also likely that narwhal horns would wash up as far south as England and Germany.
1: The sea unicorn that Frobisher and his men came across was undoubtedly a perfectly normal, non-magical narwhal, and the horn of Windsor was its tusk.
0: By the late 1600s, the popularity of alicorns as cures began to dwindle as the existence of narwhals became more widely known.
1: This was mostly due to the testimony of Ola Verum, Regius Professor of All-Denmark. A historian and natural philosopher, Verum was well known for his cabinet of curiosities, which included fossils, Native American artifacts, and even a pet great auk. In 1630, Verum was asked by the merchants of Copenhagen to take a closer look at the unicorn horns they were selling.
2: Verum declared that the alicorns were, in fact, narwhal tusks. Furthermore, since they were not unicorn horns, they had no medicinal use.
1: This seemingly damning proclamation had little effect on the trade of alicorns as the general populace simply preferred to ignore it. Humans have always had a habit of simply ignoring new facts that interrupt their worldview. Remember, it took over 100 years for Copernicus' theory that the earth revolved around the sun to be widely accepted.
0: The merchants, not wanting to lose their revenue, continued selling the tusks as alicorns. It took another century before the trade completely dried up.
1: Physicians and apothecaries also thought it not prudent to suddenly shift gears in the type of medicine they were providing. They were afraid of relatives of the deceased who had been prescribed alicorns becoming angry. As a result, alicorns remained on the pharmacopoeia, the list of ingredients apothecaries were required to carry, until
0: 1741. Part of the reason why it took so long for alicorns to fall out of favor was that during the end of the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, there was a belief held by many Europeans of the duality of creatures, That is, all marine animals had terrestrial counterparts. If a unicorn existed in the ocean, it also must exist on land.
1: Therefore, if one source of alicorns was the narwhal, they believed that alicorns found on land must have come from a land-dwelling unicorn.
2: We'll continue our hunt for unicorns right after this.
1: Life is a highway. Now, back to the story.
2: Let's now look a bit more eastward for the land counterpart to the narwhal. Much like alicorns were known for their poison-detecting and healing powers, there was a similar, mysterious material that was making great waves in the Muslim and Chinese empires. This material was referred to in countless Arabic and Chinese manuscripts as kutu.
1: First written about by Muslim natural historian Al-Biruni in the 11th century, kutu is a material of enigmatic origin. Al-Biruni claimed it was a horn or bone from the forehead of a bull or even a bird. He describes it as such.
0: It originates from an animal. It is said to be obtained from the forehead of a bull in the region of the Turks in the country of the Kyrgyz. And it is said also that it originates from the forehead of a large bird. Its value comes from the saying that the approach of poisoned food causes it to exude. The Ichwan al-Razijans state that the best is curved and that it changes from yellow into red, then comes the apricot-colored one, then that passing into a dust color and down to black, end quote. So kutu is a horn or bone that comes either
2: from the forehead of a bull or a bird. Much like an alicorn, it sweats in the presence of poison. It comes in many colors with its value
0: dependent on the color. Mentions of kutu can be found scattered through Muslim and Chinese scientific texts from the Middle Ages, and as a result, its origin can be hard to track down.
1: Its similarities to alicorn make its origin all
2: the more intriguing.
1: If alicorns come from narwhals, could kutu come from living, land-dwelling unicorns?
2: Two scientists, Bertold Laufer in the early 1900s and Richard Ettinghausen in the 1930s, set out to find the source of this mysterious kutu by studying Chinese and Arabic texts about it.
1: Al Biruni refers to the more valuable type of kutu being curved, and many later recordings note kutu's wriggly texture. Laufer theorized that the curved, wriggly kutu was not, unfortunately, a unicorn's horn, but was, in fact, a walrus's tusk.
2: Walrus tusks aren't solid bone completely through. They have a softer inner core called dentine. Encased in smooth enamel, dentine has a consistency visually similar to a lumpy rice pudding. This odd-looking texture could very well account for a wriggly kutu.
1: Walrus tusks left out to the elements to decay can also undergo a series of visual changes, resulting in tusks appearing in different colors, from bright blue to gray to brick red and black. This matches Albaruni's description of different colored kutu.
2: The same process affects another type of ivory, mammoth tusks. Much larger than walrus tusks, these multicolored, decaying pieces of ivory could account for descriptions of long pieces of kutu being used to build chests and boxes.
1: While walruses and mammoths seem to be the main source of kutu, according to Berthold Laufer, there was one other animal that may have been a source. Not only that, this animal could be a link between the eastern kutu and western
0: alicorn. One of the theorized sources of kutu that appeared in Chinese and Arabic texts was a horn sprouting from the forehead of a great bird. Laufer believed that this great bird was actually a much different creature than now extinct woolly rhinoceros.
1: Woolly rhinoceros skulls have long been mistaken by people who find them for the skulls of great birds. The creature's arch-skeletal snout resembles a very large bird's beak. Laufer believed that the ivory of the woolly rhino's horn was also used as a source for kutu.
2: The woolly rhinoceros seemed to be the missing link between European unicorns and kutu. Kutu became popular much earlier than alicorns and was associated with
0: detecting poisons and healing from the 11th century onward. Alicorns became popular during the 1400s and 1500s and also became associated with healing. The woolly rhinoceros, a powerful, one-horned creature, was thought to be a source of Kutu, much like the unicorn was the source of alicorn.
1: While we can make this connection now, as woolly rhinos originated in Siberia and went extinct there in about 8,000 BCE, medieval and Renaissance era- Europeans did not. Therefore, while stories of a land unicorn may have trickled down to them through trade with Muslim caliphates, Europeans still hadn't laid eyes on the creature.
0: Still, the existence of the narwhal, the sea unicorn, must mean that a land unicorn lived somewhere on Earth. The search for the unicorn became a driving force behind European exploration and colonization of foreign lands. In 1821...
1: The respected quarterly journal printed a curious note written by Major Latter, an English army major stationed in Nepal. The note read, Quote,
0: in a Tibetan manuscript which I procured the other day from the hills, the unicorn is classed under the head of those animals whose hooves are divided. It is called the one-horned sopo. Upon inquiring what kind of animal it was, to our astonishment, the person who brought me the manuscript described exactly the unicorn of the ancients, saying that it was a native of the interior of Tibet, fierce and extremely wild, seldom if ever caught alive," End quote.
1: The note ran as an announcement that the unicorn had been found at last, and an editorial that accompanied it in the Quarterly Journal claimed that Major Ladder was endeavoring to secure a specimen of this unicorn for scientific study. As you may be able to guess, the specimen never materialized.
2: By the 1760s in Europe, neoclassicism had taken hold as the artistic and philosophical movement of the day. Following the rediscovery of Pompeii and Herculaneum in Italy, the movement, drawing inspiration from the plays, art, architecture, and philosophy of classical antiquity, became hugely popular. At this time, people began rediscovering the works of classical
1: authors like Aristotle, Pliny the Elder, and Theseus.
0: If you remember from the last episode, Tizius is a familiar name to the world of unicorn hunters. A Greek natural philosopher, Theseus wrote down the first recorded sighting of a unicorn in his work, Indica. He wrote,
1: Quote, There are in India certain wild asses which are as large as horses and larger. Their bodies are white, their heads dark red, and their eyes dark blue. They have a horn on the forehead which is about a foot and a half in length. The base of this horn, for some two hands breadth above the brow, is pure white. The upper part is sharp and of a vivid crimson, and the remainder or middle portion is black. Those who drink out of these horns made into drinking vessels are not subject, they say, to convulsions or to the holy disease epilepsy. Indeed, they are immune even to poison if either before or after swallowing such they drink wine, water, or anything else from these beakers. The animal is exceedingly swift and powerful so that no creature, neither the horse nor any other, can overtake it. They will not desert their offspring and fight with horn, teeth, and heels, and they kill many horses and men, End quote.
0: This went on to become the base description of a unicorn cited by scholars and unicorn hunters alike for the next 2,000 years. Theseus'
2: works, including his descriptions of the unicorn, experienced a renaissance in natural philosophy during the neoclassical era. Explorers like Major Ladder, spurred by the unicorn description originated by Theseus and parroted in works by Aristotle and Pliny the Elder, set out to explore foreign lands as they increasingly came under European rule.
1: The age of neoclassicism was also, unfortunately for non-Europeans, the age of colonization.
2: Sightings of unicorns traveled from the far reaches of India, Tibet, and most intriguing to Europeans, from the depths of unexplored Central Africa.
1: A roadblock that many explorers seemed to run into frequently
2: was that the unicorns seemed to always exist exactly where they weren't. Russian geographer Nikolai Shevalsky summed it up well in his book Mongolia, the Tangut Country, and the Solitudes of Northern Tibet.
0: Quote, A prevalent superstition is that the chiru has only one horn growing from the center of its head, In Gansu and Kokonor, we were told that unicorns were rare, one or two in a thousand. But the Mongols in Saidem, who are perfectly well acquainted with the Cheru, deny entirely the existence there of a one-horned antelope, though admitting that it might be found in southwestern Tibet. Had we gone further, we should probably have heard that it was only to be found in India, and so on." In the mid-1800s,
2: a number of European explorers had recounted tales told to them by various African tribesmen of one-horned, horse-like or antelope-like creatures living in the interior of the continent. The hunt was on. Who would, at long last, finally find the unicorn? One of the
1: most prolific explorers of this period was Harry Hamilton Johnston, who by the late 1800s had become the British governor of Uganda. Harry was greatly inspired by the writings of earlier explorers and had a passion for linguistics and discovery.
0: He reasoned that since the existence of various pygmy tribes in Africa, once thought to be legend, had been confirmed, the unicorn may well exist there as well.
1: Johnston wished to travel to the largely unexplored center of Africa in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to discover if the unicorn lurked there, he had read from other explorers reports of pygmy tribesmen referring to a type of forest dwelling horse or ass called the Ati. In his autobiography, he wrote,
0: Quote, the occurrence of anything like a horse or ass, animals so partial to treeless, grassy plains, in the depths of the mightiest forest of the world, seemed to me so strange that I determined to make further inquiries on the subject whenever fate should lead me in the direction of the great Congo forest. End quote.
1: The Ati turned into something of an obsession for Johnston. Could this, at long last, be the unicorn tribespeople had been reporting?
2: Johnston's chance came in 1899, when he apprehended a Belgian merchant who had kidnapped a number of Pygmy tribespeople from the Congo in an attempt to bring them to Paris to display them during the 1900 World's Fair. Interested in learning more about their language, Johnston decided to escort the Pygmies back to their
0: village in the Congo forest. The Pygmies told Johnston more about the Ati. It was a three- or two-toed animal, as opposed to the normally one-toed horse. And while elusive, they often caught the animal to eat it by driving it into hidden pits. The pygmies pointed out two-toed tracks to their white companions, claiming that they were Ati tracks.
2: On their journey to the pygmy village, the expedition met some Congo state soldiers, some of whom sported waist belts reportedly made from Ati skin. The skin intrigued Johnston. Like a zebra, it was striped. Johnston grew
1: excited about the possibilities these clues pointed to. Somewhere in the forest was a new and exciting type of creature. And, he hoped, this creature was the unicorn that both explorers and African tribespeople had claimed lived in the unexplored underbrush of the Congo forest.
2: By the time Johnston and the expedition finally reached the pygmy village, the Europeans were a bit worse for wear. After the pygmies had a very happy and celebration-filled reunion with their families, Johnston was forced to turn back due to a wave of malaria traveling rapidly through his group.
1: Back in Uganda, however, Johnston received a package. As a thank you from the pygmies, they had sent him two skulls and a complete skin of the mysterious Ati.
2: this african unicorn had been the focus of johnston's exploration for over two years and now he could finally examine it the creature's skin was a rich russet brown with strange zebra-like stripes along the flanks and legs
1: what the creature lacked however was a single forehead mounted horn
2: English explorer Harry Johnston's quest for the unicorn had taken him through the unexplored heart of Africa. While he hoped to find the source of the unicorn myth in the forests of the Congo, instead, he discovered one of the greatest biological finds of the 20th century.
1: Previously unknown to Europeans, the African unicorn Johnston had found was the okapi, the diminutive, only living relative to the giraffe. Native to the tropical forests of the Congo, okapis are small, solitary herbivores that have, as Johnston saw in footprints, two hoofed toes on each foot.
0: The okapi, obviously, was long known to peoples living in the area. The Bantu knew of them, and the Mbute have been catching and eating them for thousands of years. This has a curious implication for reports of Africans telling Europeans about unicorns in Africa.
1: Christianity had been present in sub-Saharan Africa, especially in places like Ethiopia, since the fourth century CE. At the same time, the Christian allegorical text Physiologus had been translated into Ethiopic and many other languages and was disseminated throughout Africa more than a thousand years before Johnston set foot on the continent.
2: As we discussed in the previous episode, Physiologus was a kind of natural history book of fables for Christians. The book contains a story about the unicorn and the
0: virgin, an archetypal character. Quote, Unicornus the unicorn, which is also called Rhinoceros by the Greeks, is of the following nature. He is a very small animal, like a kid excessively swift, with one horn in the middle of his forehead, and no hunter can catch him, but he can be trapped by the following stratagem. A virgin girl is led to where he lurks, and there she is sent off by herself into the woods. He soon leaps into her lap when he sees her and embraces her, and hence gets caught." End quote.
1: At the time of Johnston's exploration, the tale of the Christian unicorn, either from the Bible or physiologus, was common to parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Even non-Christian tribespeople may have arguably heard the tale.
2: So were the various African tribespeople who reported the unicorn to European explorers telling genuine tales of sightings? Did they truly believe that there was a unicorn in the underbrush?
1: or? Could they potentially be playing a trick on the wide-eyed, gullible European explorers that kept ruthlessly claiming native lands as their own? After all, the okapi was well known to the peoples of the Congo forest, and the animals certainly did not have a single horn.
2: Either way, by the end of the 1800s, the world was in agreement. The unicorn did not and could not exist. Baron Georges Cuvier a French scientist, had concluded that unicorns were anatomically impossible.
1: Never in his studies had Cuvier encountered an animal with a single symmetrical horn growing from its skull, and furthermore, that horn could not grow from the frontal suture or seam of an animal's skull, the very place that if a unicorn existed, the horn would have to grow from.
2: After the discovery of the okapi and the mapping of the Central Congo, coupled with a large amount of European exploration in India and Tibet, the world was deemed too well known for a unicorn to still be hiding somewhere in a
0: secret glen. European colonizers had mapped and explored every region of the world. Everyone knew that the unicorn was, as it always had been, nothing more than a simple fable. Unfortunately,
2: everyone was wrong. In
1: 1936, American scientist W. Franklin Dove had a breakthrough. While practicing biology at the University of Maine, he began to suspect that former scientists such as Baron George Cuvier were wrong about the way horns grew on animal skulls.
2: The prevailing school of thought had been that horns grew directly out of the skulls of horned animals, such as bulls, sheep, or antelopes. Instead, Dove discovered, horns originated on a calf or lamb as separate floating horn buds attached to the flesh above an animal's skull. As the animal grew, the horn buds would sprout bony cores that eventually fused to the skull underneath.
1: Dove had, during his studies, become fascinated with certain accounts of domesticated bulls in Africa and sheep in parts of India. These accounts almost always concerned manipulation of the creature's horns. In some cases, the animal's owners reportedly trained the horns into various shapes or brought them together, points touching, or even caused the animals to grow four or six horns.
0: What Dove was most interested in, though, were reports of animals with one horn. Like the other modifications, this one horn had to have been manipulated somehow by the animal's owner to grow that way.
1: These unicorn animals were reportedly created by branding very young lambs on their horn buds and then treating the horn buds with a mixture of oil and soot.
2: Scientists had argued that these stories couldn't possibly result in unicorns. By branding the lamb's horn buds, the horns wouldn't automatically shift to growing into one horn from the center of the forehead. In fact, they were more likely to grow farther apart, perhaps warped by the damaged horn buds.
1: Dove, however, theorized that the animal's owners were not simply branding the horn buds. Oil and soot have long been used as a means to cauterize a wound and inhibit infection. The oil and soot mixture was not a magical horn-growing mixture, but a way to keep the animals' heads from infection. The only reason why the oil and soot mixture would be used on the horn buds would be if there was some type of wound to them, beyond just branding them.
0: Dove believed he knew how these animals' owners created their unicorns. In
1: 1933, Dove performed his most well-known experiment, He performed an operation on a day-old Ayrshire bull, cutting out the calf's two horn buds and grafting them together in the center of its forehead.
2: The surgery, although by today's standards considered exceptionally cruel and perhaps not the most necessary, was a resounding success. As the calf aged, its two connected horn buds began sprouting into one large, impressive horn
1: the buds sprouted bony cores that fused to the skull underneath. In this case, the place where they fused was the frontal suture of the bull's skull, exactly where Cuvier claimed a horn could never grow from.
0: The unibull's horn ended up functioning very well for the animal. As he became mature, his horn was straight and about a foot long. He became the leader of his herd and was rarely challenged by any of the two-horned bulls.
1: Dove was able to recreate this experiment successfully on a number of other goats and cows, creating in his studies a whole flock of unicorns. He believed that the ancient herdsmen that had unicorn bulls and sheep lead their herds must have used a similar technique, transplanting the animal's horn buds when very young to create a mature unicorn.
0: This could perhaps be an explanation of the emergence of unicorns in written history and legend over the past few thousand years. Herdsmen in India, the Himalayas, and sub-Saharan Africa practiced horn manipulation on their charges. Coincidentally, India, the Himalayas, and sub-Saharan Africa were the very places that Europeans spent centuries looking for unicorns.
1: Dove also posited that the use of horn manipulations in these cultures was used to create leaders of the flock. The unibull or unisheep would be the alpha animal of the flock leading and protecting it. From this we may have gotten the aristocratic nature of the unicorn, which eventually led the animal to be closely associated with Jesus Christ himself.
2: As you may remember in the previous episode, Self-proclaimed wizard Oberon Zell created Lancelot the Living Unicorn after a series of experiments
0: on sheep and goats. Oberon Zell got the inspiration to perform these experiments after reading W. Franklin Dove's notes. As unicorn making had not been particularly useful or lucrative, Dove's experiments had all but fallen into obscurity. Using the newly rediscovered notes, Zell was
2: able to successfully move the horn buds on a number of goats to manipulate their horns into growing as a single point from the center of their foreheads. One of these
1: goats was Lancelot, and the rest is circus history.
0: Throughout these two episodes, we've traced the fleet-footed unicorn as it has galloped its way through history. We've caught glimpses of the creature in metaphor, art, and written record. But can we, after this great hunt has concluded, say we've really found a living unicorn?
1: Images of unicorns first came to us from the carvings of ancient Mesopotamia. In these
2: carvings, goat or bull-like creatures were depicted with single horns. Greek naturalist Theseus was the one to really bring the unicorn to the forefront of history, and with his description of the Indian ass, he kick-started a millennia-long search for the creature.
1: While the Indian ass as it was described never existed, the animals that inspired it and its common unicorn qualities, such as speed, aloofness, and ferocity, seem to have been the Indian rhinoceros, the cheroo, and the kiong.
0: The unicorn lived on as an artistic metaphor representing Jesus Christ for hundreds of years.
1: In the 1700s and 1800s, the search for the unicorn was once again revitalized in colonial Africa, India, and Tibet. The result of this fervor, while not the discovery of a unicorn, was the discovery of the mysterious
2: Okapi. By the 20th century,
0: it seemed clear. Unicorns never really existed. As we discussed in this episode, that wasn't completely true. The source of the unicorn myth can trace its roots to two possible creatures, two living
2: unicorns. However, to consider these two creatures as unicorns, the cultural ideal of what a unicorn is should be broadened. At no point in history existed a magical, powerful, naturally occurring horse, goat, or bull with a single horn sprouting from its forehead. The first non-traditional unicorn is the narwhal, referred to by people
1: during the Renaissance as the sea unicorn. The narwhal was the main source of alicorn, or unicorn horns, which had a robust trade in Europe at the time.
2: While not exactly magical unicorns or even land-dwelling creatures, the narwhal can arguably be considered a unicorn. It does have a single long horn sprouting from its head.
1: The only true unicorns that have ever existed in our world are those that have come from human manipulation. As W. Franklin Dove found in his studies, Humans in India, Tibet and Africa have been creating unicorn bulls and unicorn sheep via manipulation of their horns. Often these unicorns would be the
2: leaders of their herds. This technique was refined by Dove in the 1930s, leading to creation of his unibull and later Oberon Zell's
0: creation of Lancelot, the last living unicorn. Unicorns, it seems, have never existed in nature. However, stories of various foreign animals, alicorns, and some groups' practices of manipulating their animals to grow one single horn fed into the legend. We can easily see that our collective imagined unicorn shares
2: traits with all of these possible unicorns and that it's been these pieces of evidence and stories passed down through history that created the magical unicorn we know and love. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries.
1: This concludes our investigation into the unicorn, And that means it's also time to say goodbye to our guest host, Vanessa.
2: Thanks for helping us investigate the mystery of the unicorn, Vanessa. Thanks for inviting me to talk about one of my favorite myths. Tune in next week for another exciting mystery
0: that defies easy explanation.
1: And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out Mythology.
0: Thanks, Richard. You can find Mythology, Unexplained Mysteries, and all of Parcast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Castbox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram
2: as at Parcast and Twitter at ParcastNetwork. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer.
1: Unexplained Mysteries and Mythology were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the Parcast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Aidan Connolly. This episode was written by Molly Quinlan and stars Molly Brandenburg, Vanessa Richardson, and Richard Rosner.